Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of Dirty Drinks. Good morning, Dr. Starlin. How are you today? I am wonderful, Sarah. How are you? It's We're recording on a Friday, so how can it not be good to be on a Friday? Except for I do have to round this weekend, so it's a little bit painful, but it shouldn't be too bad. I mean, Friday is always a great day, and as my dad always used to say, it's five o'clock somewhere, so we might as well start now. Right. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. And, you know, the other part of it is that it's almost football season. I think there was an NFL preseason game last night. So it's getting close to that time of the year and maybe the weather will be changing. So you can actually sit outside without uh, feeling like you just got out of a shower. Yeah, that would be nice. Um, I don't think we've learned that you are a football fan yet. No, you probably hadn't. Yeah, I went to Lincoln and went to every football game I could down there and was a season ticket holder for years. I just recently gave them up for reasons that we'll probably have to discuss, uh, not on uh, something that's being recorded, but uh, we can <laughs> we can do that sometime. It'd be even better over actual drink. I am up for that. We I think we all need a mini vacation. So. Speaking of that, we need to get our guest to a, a football game sometime since he's from a, a football crazy state, right, uh, Dr. Cortez? Go ahead, sir. I'll let you introduce him. Yeah, so we are super happy to have Dr. Cortez Penfield on as our guest today. He is a, a UNMC infectious diseases physician and a medical director on multiple different product projects. So welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much. Uh, it's a Pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're super excited to have you um, uh, and uh, and talk to you today. So great. So um, just give us a just a little bit of an introduction to yourself, if you can, so that the listeners can uh, know who you are. Sure. Um, name's Nicholas or Nico Cortez. Um, like Sarah said, I'm an infectious disease doc here at the University of Nebraska. Um, I grew up and did all my schooling and training down in Texas. Uh, originally was. Uh, from Austin was a Longhorn and then went over to Houston um, where I did med school residency and then infectious disease fellowship at Baylor, which uh, if you listen to prior podcasts is about 30 minutes up the road from UTMB where Dr. Hewlett did her training. Um, and then towards the end of my fellowship, I started you know, casting a wide net as to where I might end up and um, uh, talked to Dr. Hewlett and a couple of our other colleagues here at UNMC who I knew, uh, <laughs> if I'm being honest with you, who I knew through Twitter <laughs> and social media. <laughs> and, uh, one, of, one of our coworkers, uh, when, when she saw that I had applied here, cold called me and gave me the hard sell on why it was just a wonderful place to work and a place, wonderful place to live. Um, and so I took her up on that, came up to, to check out Omaha, fell in love with uh, both the city and then, and then really with the university. Um, and that's the rest of the story. So um, the hats I wear here are, uh, I am an assistant professor of infectious disease. I work primarily on our orthopedic infectious disease service. So I do bone and joint infections. Um, and then I have a, a side gig as the medical director of our OPAT or oral parenteral antimicrobial therapy, AKA home IV antibiotics program. Um, and uh, I'm doing a little bit of work with uh, 
ICAP in our infection prevention uh, uh, work. Very cool. So um, I actually went to Baylor for two years in Waco. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's kind of cool to have more Baylor people on. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah that's very cool. You know, um, our boss trained at Baylor too, Dr. Rupp. Nice. There's a, there's a big University of Nebraska and Texas connection. There's a, the, the Texas to Omaha pipeline is very strong here. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think 33% of our episodes have been people from Texas. I think that us in Nebraska, we might have to remedy that because as you know, even though there's a pipeline, I think we have a little bit of animosity towards that school in Austin that's now <laughs> going to join the SEC. Um, so uh, we, we need to get more uh, non-Texans on, I think. Although uh, uh, you mentioned Dr. Rupp, so he's going to have to be a future guest for sure. Yeah, yeah, you're getting a real, a real diversity of viewpoints with the uh, both the Galveston and the Houston uh, uh, guests coming to join you. <laughs> well, I know we're super glad that you're here. Um, and uh, I'm glad we got you out of Texas to, to see a different part of the world and actually uh, see snow, um, which was probably an interesting thing for you and, and drive around in winter. What was that like? Yeah, so, you know, we, we had maybe a slight dusting of snow once a decade or so when I was a kid, uh, and it actually did snow once in Houston, which was great. Um, the, the, the difference between being in Texas and being in Omaha with the snow is that uh, if you're in Texas and it snows, you need to stay indoors because even if, A, if you think you know how to drive in snow, you don't, and then B, if somehow you do, because you're a transplant, nobody else does, and they're still going to hit you. And so everything shut, you know, the, the, the barest glaze of, of snowflakes or, or ice on the roads, everything shuts down. There are dozens of car wrecks. It's, it's a total disaster. It's, it's the first day of snow in Omaha, like times 10. <laughs> I remember when I was in Waco, it snowed on Valentine's Day when I was down there. And it was just a very light dusting of snow really late in the night. And I walked out onto Baylor campus and there are people having muddy snowball fights and building little muddy snowmen. And I was like, this is ridiculous. It's not even that great of a snow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have our own problems. I, I would be lying if I told you that, that one of the reasons I, I didn't look to, to leave Houston after spending a decade there was um, going through Harvey in, in 2017 and Actually, it wasn't even my first hurricane during Trump during a uh, training there. But um, yeah, we got we got flooded into our apartment complex. We couldn't leave. Um, actually, we couldn't leave by car. I, I walked over to the VA, which was across the street because I was the only infectious disease person who could actually get into the hospital on one of those days. And so, wow. yeah, I went through that and I was like, I got to get out of here. This, this city's slipping into the ocean. This is going to be Atlantis. <laughs> and now That's you're crazy. where there's tornadoes, right? It's a yeah. whole different set of problems. Yeah, the difference is, is that we don't really know for days that they're coming. I guess you guys kind of have an idea that they're coming towards you, but you don't know exactly where they're coming down there on the coast. Dude, but, but, you know, everyone thinks they can write it out. You know, you, the, the day before the hurricane, you go into the grocery store and all the water and all the chips and all the beer is out. And, you know, it's, uh, it's the hour before it hits that people decide, oh, actually I need to evacuate. And then all those people get stuck on the roads and that's, 
yeah it 2017 was a big wake-up call <laughs> like i need to get away from the ocean i can go visit the beach i don't need to live there <laughs> <laughs> that's what we all say here that's what we all say here so um on to uh, medicine things for a little bit, if that's okay. You mentioned that you do orthopedic infectious disease. We had Dr. Hewlett on, and we didn't really have time to talk to her much about that. So hopefully we can touch base with you on specifically, what is that? And is there actually a need for something that seems so niche for bone and joint infections? And is it, is it that difficult and complicated? I say that as I'm on the service and I just saw 10 patients today. So, um, but please feel free to elaborate. Yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of unique aspects about infectious disease care at UNMC, and we have a dedicated orthopedic or bone and joint infectious disease service. We're one of, um, I would say, maybe a dozen or a couple dozen centers in the whole U.S. that have this. That have this. Um, and, you know, the, the benefit that having a dedicated bone and joint team brings you is, is very similar to the benefit that we see with our dedicated transplant or oncology ID teams. You know, it's not that I'm any smarter about bone and joint infections than the folks who round over on the general ID service, but when there's a small, uh, a small group of specialists who are collaborating with one another, there's more uh, opportunity for sort of longitudinal relationship building. Um, you learn one another's style of practice. It's easier for a small group of physicians to all get on the same page and all practice the same way and all meet and talk about how their practice should change when new, new research and new data comes out. Um, and so that's been the real benefit. Um, you know, so our ortho ID group is probably five or six physicians who do 80 plus percent of the time um, with really perhaps yourself, Dr. Hewlett and I doing the majority of the time. Um, and that makes it really easy for us to all get in a conference room or, or these days on a Zoom call with our orthopedic surgeon colleagues. Because again, in orthopedics, there's, that's, a, that's a huge specialty. And, and there are actually only a couple of folks here who focus specifically on joint infections and joint replacements. Uh, and, and so it's much easier for us to collaborate as a small group um, and, and, and like I said, decide what we think about new literature and decide how we ought to manage um, cases that fall outside of the guidelines. Um, and orthopedic surgery uh, is really increasing as our population ages. So folks, Americans are older these days. They have more comorbidities that lead to needing joint replacement. So we're an overweight and obese society where we've got a high incidence of diabetes and its complications. So things like vascular disease, poor blood flow to the extremities, and that causes, uh, that causes infections. Um, and so the, the need for bone and joint infection treatment has really exploded over the past couple of decades. Um, and, you know, when, when our general infectious disease service, a couple of years before I got here, uh, was getting unmanageably big, um, you know, our colleagues sat down and looked and saw, okay, how can we divide this up? And we discovered that, uh, as you mentioned, there's a big and big ongoing demand for bone and joint infection treatment. That, that was a huge part of the general infectious disease service. And um, lo and behold, enough of a patient population to support its own team. So here we are. 
And I oh. assume that with the smaller teams that you're talking about and everything, you can work on improving outcomes so that the patient's uh, outcomes and maybe satisfaction are better as well as what it would be if you have more moving parts. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a point of, a point of frustration, certainly between specialists, is um, I hear this from the surgeons a lot that, that we appreciate that you guys are all on the same page and you're doing things the same way that surgeons do not like uncertainty. They don't like the plan from the infectious disease service changing depending on who is on. Um, and, and I don't blame that. I actually get the same comment from, from residents. And I remember that from being a resident in training. Nothing more frustrating than, than being a trainee and a new attending physician comes on service and they change the plan because that's just not how they would do things. Um, which isn't to say that medicine isn't an art and we, you know, there are many aspects of medicine for which um, there isn't good quality research, particularly in infectious diseases. A lot of the things we do are based on sort of historical precedent and expert opinion versus randomized controlled trials. Um, but it is, um, the patients are more satisfied and the other doctors are more satisfied when we are all on the same page. Um, and to, to your point, that makes it much easier to look at and track outcomes. Um, so for example, when I got here, I was really interested in using more um, oral meaning pill antibiotics instead of IV antibiotics um, for bone and joint infections, which um, although there's quite a bit of data for it, um, uh, was not the standard of care until very recently. And so um, I was, because we have this confined ortho ID team, you know, able to pitch it to Dr. Hewlett and, and yourself and our, our other ID colleagues and then pitch it to the orthopedic surgeons. Uh, we all agreed how we were gonna treat the, those patients. And then it was very easy for us to, to actually track and report those outcomes because we had all of those patients going to see the same couple docs and clinics. All you had to do was go and pull those lists of patients. Um, and then and we could see how those folks did. And you know, we're presenting that right now at our at our musculoskeletal infection society conference. So that's very cool. So as you were going through all of your training and residencies, um, how did you decide on becoming an ortho ID physician? Or did that just kind of fall into place? No, I had an extremely circuitous route. Um, so it's very funny because I guess like infectious disease and infection prevention and control is sort of in my blood. So my parents are both docs. My mom was a pediatrician, although she spent most of her time working for the state government in Texas. She was um, eventually, she was part of and then eventually the head of what's basically the state level CDC. And then my dad was a geriatrician who spent all of his time doing quality improvement in nursing homes and basically working for the Texas Health Department to um, develop uh, a reporting for nursing home quality. So he basically made a website where you can go and if you need to ship grandma off to a nursing home, where is the nursing home where she's not going to be neglected and develop decubitus ulcers because no one moves her in bed or, you know, she's not going to break her hip because no one is watching and she falls. Um, and so they, they were both very much in this realm of like quality improvement and in infectious diseases. And I like totally rebelled against that. I didn't want to be a doctor at all. I wanted to do anything other than what my parents did. I wanted to be like a musician. 
I don't know how the I didn't know the talent or dedication for that. And so then I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll be a high school band director. And then uh, I did not actually like working with kids when I got into college and started trying that. <laughs> like, I don't know what I can do. Uh, and what what had always come really easily to me was biology and and uh, particularly microbiology. Um, and always sort of had a latent interest in that. And so I got into medicine through being really interested in the bacteria and viruses. Um, went into med school because you know my my public health advisor in college told me that if I, I wanted to be taken seriously in public health, I needed to go get a medical degree. And then once I got there, I uh, uh, found that infectious diseases was like really challenging and stimulating and uh, decided to, to go that path. But even as, as, as late as a couple of years ago, I didn't know I was gonna be an ortho ID doctor. I wanted to be a virologist. I did all this research training in, in noroviruses actually. Um, and, and again, found it was, it was difficult to compete in the academic world as an MD working alongside folks who have PhD training and actually um, spent you know years and years learning how to do work in the labs and run various assays and um, you know there are a lot of wonderful MD PhDs out there but as an MD I was kind of like a tourist. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that for a couple of years and I thought you know what this is really fun. I'm not going to make my name doing this. I, I miss patients. I need to go take care of some patients. And so here I am. It's amazing well, awesome. how we find, we find our niche, right? Yeah. What we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. I definitely is. This is definitely something I'm extremely happy doing uh, and also totally stumbled into. <laughs> Yeah, well, one of the niches that you've taken on here is that you've started doing uh, some of our ID research uh, stuff. And so you're our liaison for research here at UNMC. And you sounds like you've done some bench research in the past, as well as we're doing some clinical research. And I think you might have done some additional training in, in, in a research type fellowship or something. Can you elaborate on that a little bit and, and what, why you see that as a you know, vital mission for an ap- academic medical center and, and doing it well and training others to do it well? Yeah, so um, I, I had a couple long conversations with my mentors and, and my co-fellows in infectious diseases when I was getting towards graduation in terms of thinking about um, how, how can I actually use my, my training and my years on this earth in, in, to, to serve my community and serve society? And there are a couple of ways you can do that. You can do direct patient care and that's great. And I do that and I love it. Um, but one of the things that, that patient care doesn't give you to necessarily the same degree is, is reach. You're, you're touching the lives of the people you're taking care of, you're taking care of, but you can, you can dramatically expand your impact by either a teaching others, which is something that a lot of us do here and here in the university. And I think that's a big draw for a lot of folks going into academic medicine um, or by advancing the art, advancing the, the state of practice, and, you know, generating new knowledge. Um, and that was something I was first just interested in as, as, a, um, as an end to itself. Uh, one of the things that I find clinical medicine sometimes lacks that research really offers is creativity. You know, your patients don't really appreciate it if you start, uh, you know, experimenting on them to see what happens. <laughs> that's, that's generally frowned upon. 
Generally, yes, I agree. <laughs> and, and we don't do that, by the way, right? No, <laughs> we do not. Um, but in the you know in the laboratory setting, um, creativity and like dare I say it, but like play is really important in terms of you know finding the the less the less trodden path and finding the things that other folks um, have missed or not paid attention to and, and, and making new discoveries. And so I found that a really compelling part of research um, and eventually started getting interested in it, not only as an end to itself, but realizing that in, in infectious disease specifically, as I mentioned before, a lot of what we do isn't based on much. And there's a lot of um, low hanging fruit for someone who is interested in studying how we take care of people and how we might take care of people um, with infectious diseases. So to, to give you an example, um, most of what we do in bone and joint infection is based on very small retrospective studies where some physician looks back at the charts of a few dozen people that he or she has treated and says, what did I do? And you know, did the people who I manage differently have better or worse outcomes? Um, there are very few what we call like clinical trials where we enroll patients prospectively and match them and do all the sort of statistical analysis stuff to, um, to separate out them and make sure that the differences that we think we are seeing are due to differences in how we're treating the patients and not, for example, the fact that folks who are really sick get treated one way and folks who are healthy get treated a second way. And so obviously it looks like the sick people do worse because they were sicker to begin with. Um, and so that's the sort of stuff I'm interested in, in working in now. As for the, the research fellowship, um, I took a year out of medical school to go work in a lab. So um, Baylor, like many major academic medical centers, has training programs both for clinicians and for scientists. And there is big opportunity for cross-pollination there. Um, and then the, the uh, ABIM, the American Board of Internal Medicine, um, actually has this training pathway that lets you cut down your residency years by year and go spend that time in the lab. And that is a program that, um, that is basically de designed to expand the pipeline of physician scientists. So folks who are fluent with and comfortable working in the lab and interpreting literature, but also bring that clinical perspective. Um, and so, yeah, I, I did that as well. And I found that really meaningful. Yeah, a little bit of translational stuff. You used some really big words in what you were talking there, retrospective and prospective. So for, for the people that aren't uh, medical out there, so it, retrospective is we're looking backwards in time and, and, and looking at things, but we're not able to necessarily always pick what the intervention was in that situation, right, Nico? And then prospectively, we kind of have an idea where we can do what we call randomly put people or randomize people into different treatment arms. And so we tend to think of those as better studies than the retrospective studies where we have less control over what happens to people. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, so, so if you think about the spectrum of, of evidence, the, the why we do things the way we do them in medicine, um, so at the very base level, there's, that's just how we've always done it. Or, you know, I am an expert. I spent my life treating this particular kind of infectious disease, and this is what I do. And I say, you know, in my experience that it works. And then above that is that, that retrospective uh, sort of data that you're talking about where, okay, we look back at people we treated in the past and we see 
what are the differences between the folks who did well versus did poorly? And can we, can we learn something from that? And then um, higher up is what we call that prospective. So we're actually gonna enroll patients in a study. We're gonna assign them randomly so that we don't have these confounding factors, these differences between groups that are actually explaining what's going on. Um, and then we can treat those two groups of folks differently and we can see who does better. Um, and then, then, you know, at the very top is, okay, we're not going to go by one study. We're going to actually look at all the data and compare um, and, and do what we call a meta-analysis where we, we look at all of the studies and what were the problems with each one and what, what did each one say and, and what do we think when we look at everything all together. So I'm sure that with the special, the infectious diseases specialty that we're in, it's really hard to predict those infections and like enroll people in a study, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's very particular, it's very hard in particular to study rare events. So we see this with rare diseases, you know, some genetic disorder that one in a million people get the data behind that is ends up necessarily being mostly about expert opinion because no one person sees more than a few cases. Um, and then similarly, uh, you know, for example, prosthetic joint infections. Um, so you get your knee replaced. Some small fraction of those folks will go on to have an infection and that will be a big problem. They'll need additional surgeries. It's cost, it's time in the hospital. Sometimes it's time that they can't put weight on their leg because the joint is missing because we had to replace it. Um, fortunately, those are not common. And so uh, if you want to get a, uh, a study that has a large number of patients, usually you have to go and reach out to your colleagues at different institutions and say, okay, we're all going to work together. We're going to pool our experiences, pool our patients, and then actually get a, a sample size so that we can learn something meaningful about that. So applying all that conversation there to our current predicament, which would be the COVID pandemic, um, we really don't have much retrospective since COVID was a brand new virus, right? So we're trying to do prospective studies and get some prospective data where now we could get a little bit of retrospective data since this has been going on for two years. And so you, we're trying to do things based on science, right? That's why we try to make as much changes as we, as we can. And so this helps explain some of the changing landscape and recommendations that have been coming out, correct? As we get more data and the situation changes, then we have to kind of shift gears. Yeah, I think a lot of people very reasonably struggle with, with the sense that, you know, experts keep changing what they're saying. And um, I, I think the gut reflex very often is to say, well, these people just don't know what they're talking about because they all disagree with one another and they keep saying different things, right? They're, they're flip-floppers. Um, <laughs> but you know, a good scientist doesn't, doesn't commit to one idea and then refuse to change when presented with new evidence. Um, and the past 18 months have been nothing but new evidence. And also, you know, recommendations are, um, are not only based on published data and studies, but an understanding of the conditions on the ground. And so, um, you know, this is coming out uh, in the, af after the first initial weeks of the Delta variants, you know, basically taking over COVID uh, in the US and our cases rising again exponentially and 
the hospitals filling up. I was reading an article today about um, a one-year-old in Texas who had to be flown out of Houston to a hospital over a hundred miles away because there are no ICU beds left for kids in Houston, the fourth largest city in the entire country. Um, and so, you know, if, if you're asking yourself, gosh, why is the CDC recommending masks again now that we have lots of people vaccinated and things were doing so well, it's because the conditions on the ground are changing. Um, and, and so, you know, I understand the instinct to say, when the recommendations change, that undermines my faith in, in you know, the, the authority of, of whoever is changing those recommendations, but our understanding of, of the pandemic and the pandemic themselves are both changing on a daily basis. So that's, that's a good thing. It would, be, it would be very concerning if the CDC had been seeing the exact same thing today that it was three months ago or one yeah. month ago. That's some great insight. It is an ever-changing world right now with the pandemic. I'm curious, um, with your interest in virology, have you been following the SARS-CoV-2 virus, like just on a personal level, doing a little bit of personal research on the virus itself? I haven't gotten too deep in the basic virology. Um, one of the things that I have how do I say this without naming names? I have noticed that a lot of my colleagues, uh, both physician and non-physician, um, who are interested in public health and infectious diseases on social media and in public media, um, have seized upon the opportunity to build themselves some following and fame by sort of extending their expertise beyond its reach. And I, I recognize, I know, more about norovirus than the average person. Um, and I'm not in the even top 10% of norovirus folks in terms of my understanding of that. And I'm probably in the bottom 10% of all folks with some virology training who understand SARS-CoV-2. And so, you know, there's Dr. Angie Rasmussen on Twitter. There, there are folks who've actually, even before the pandemic, spent their entire lives studying coronavirus. And I would much rather uh, you know, sort of boost and point people towards them as the actual experts than give my own semi-lay person interpretation, you know. Don't come to me about, about the spike protein and specific mutations. I don't know. When, when I see PhD nutritionists talking about spike protein mutations, I, I just have to shake my head. That's, that's <laughs> not how... That's not how we build faith uh, in our profession. Social media certainly has a means of creating experts, right? And followings. Sure does. It's a, it's a different world. Um, but Sarah and I get to talk to you today. So it's, it, it, it opens doors too, right? Yeah. And I mean, the flip side of that is via social media, um, you know, I, I get access to incredible expertise that I I don't have, you know, walking down the hall. Um, I can, if I have a question about the HIV guidelines, well, okay, you know what? If I have a question about the HIV guidelines, I can walk down the hall and talk to Dr. Sledell <laughs> or one of our world experts. But, um, but you know, I can also get on Twitter. I could call, uh, you know, Paul Sachs over at Boston. I can, I, I can reach out to all the people who wrote those guidelines and get an answer within 
10 or 15 minutes. It's totally changed the game in the same way that, you know, railroads and telegraphs changed the game for physicians trying to communicate 200 years ago. Yeah. Comes with good and bad. That's for sure. I mean, because we can certainly educate a lot quicker than we could ever before and educate ourselves as well as the public much differently than we were before. Um, just to change gears a little bit, you mentioned that something about MSIS uh, before when you were talking about orthopedic infectious disease. We briefly again touched with Dr. Hewlett on this, and I think she's down at a big conference right now, and you're probably getting ready to uh, mediate something here soon. So what exactly is that, and, and how does that interplay with uh, your orthoinfectious disease uh, work? Sure. So the Musculoskeletal Infection Society, or MSIS, is a group of orthopedic surgeons uh, and also a, a small contingent of infectious disease docs who are really interested in managing prosthetic joints and other bone and joint infections. Um, the current president is our very own Angela Hewlett, which is why she's down in Florida right now, uh, braving COVID, uh, <laughs> being, being very strict with her infection prevention and control routines. Knowing her, I'm sure she is. <laughs> yeah, to, to run that to run that conference, um, and so we we get together once a year. We you know share and discuss the research that we've been doing, um, and try and uh, you know as as a as a professional society, as a community of practice, to all get on the same page as to what is the best way to treat these infections. And so you'll see everything from very basic science research. There are folks who are, um, they are studying phages, which are basically viruses that kill bacteria as a means to treat these infections. You just like spray the phage into the joint to people who are um, putting antibiotics into the, the cement that they use to actually hold the joints in place. Um, to folks who are doing um, more epidemiology type work, like looking at things like race and insurance status and poverty and how they influence who gets these surgeries and what kind of complications they have. Is there a way that the public can see any of this or get involved in any of this? Is there a means? Because obviously, I mean, you and I see it every day pretty much. I mean, a, a prosthetic joint infection is a major morbid problem. It causes a, a big chunk of life to be lost essentially frequently with a spacer on antibiotics until you can get a new joint. And then, you know, the function of the new joint is always a little bit different than the original joint. And, you know, people have a lot of pain and debility with it. So how can, how can people help with this? Sure. So, you know, MSIS has a website. If you um, actually, if you Google MSIS, you're going to get a, a bunch of different acronym organizations that are all MSIS. But if you Google Musculoskeletal Infection Society, um, you'll, you'll come to our webpage and that has details um, uh, on the meeting, it points towards um, publications. There's actually an opportunity to, to locate physicians in your area who do this kind of research and, and, and you could go from there. Perfect, that's, that's very helpful, thank you. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'll have to check out the website and see what it's all about. We can certainly maybe uh, uh, send it out uh, on our link. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for all of our listeners out there, we will drop the link in the show notes for the MSIS so you can check it out. Um, so one question we ask all of our guests, and this is always my favorite question. 
What is the craziest thing that you've ever seen clinically? Yeah, I, I was thinking about this question because I, I heard you ask other folks on the podcast. And uh, to be honest, I was trying to come up with an answer that wasn't like incredibly depressing. <laughs> because <laughs> most of the time in my specialty, when things go sideways, it's because something wasn't thought of or the patient didn't get listened to. Um, I think the most, the most dramatic case that I saw was during fellowship. Um, I had a patient who came in with um, basically both of his legs rotting away at the groin um, wow. acutely over the period of a couple of days. And what had happened was he had actually come in to the emergency room a few days later, complaining of horrible tearing back pain and fevers and chills and was in the ED for many hours through multiple changes of, of who was working there, which we know is a risk factor for um, things getting missed as you know, the teams have to hand off each patient and sort of give a summary of what, what they've gleaned so far. Um, and his, his team sort of fixated on his pain as maybe being due to a UTI because when they uh, looked at his urine under the microscope, there were some white blood cells and some bacteria and um, that's, that can be compatible with a urinary tract infection, but um, also can be seen in folks who've got infection from anything else, like it can be a total innocent bystander. But anyhow, they fixated on that. They gave him a, a little sort of not very strong oral antibiotic and sent him on his way and missed the fact that he had uh, a couple of days prior been eating uh, some, some chicken and swallowed a chicken bone and unbeknownst to them, it had poked its way through his gut so that his poop was spilling into his abdomen. Um, and that antibiotic was uh, enough to, to paper over his infection so they didn't die in the next couple of days. But uh, that bacteria um, then set, set up what we call a necrotizing infection or necrotizing fasciitis. And it dissected down into both of his thighs and by the time we saw him, so much of the meat there was was uh, dead. He actually ended up losing both of his legs. It was a very sad story, um, oh. but I've, I've never forgotten that. And so now if I see a patient who has stomach or back pain that I can't explain, I always get a picture to make sure that there's no perforation in the bowel that I've missed. It's crazy how those anecdotal stories certainly shape our practice, isn't it? Those things we don't forget. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't remember if Dr. Hewlett mentioned this to you, but it shapes more than practice. It shapes our individual behavior. So um, if you did infectious disease fellowship down by the Gulf Coast, you probably saw multiple people, at least a couple a year, uh, die from something called Vibrio, necrotizing fasciitis. So Vibrio is this bacteria that lives in the, in the salt water of warm ocean waters. Um, and in folks who have liver disease, it causes this horrible, again, like that necrotizing infection. Um, and you actually don't see it as often in people who have just been to the beach, but in people who eat filter feeders, so oysters. So I don't know any infectious disease doctors who train in the Gulf who will eat oysters, period. And I, I certainly, I'll step away. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't li oh, live on the Gulf, but I don't eat oysters either. <laughs> it, it, up here, it's only a, it's a board question for us in Nebraska. It's not a, a, a thing that we, we actually see. I, that's one of the things that I haven't seen as an ID provider, but, uh, but great. 
Well, it certainly sounds like you've uh, carved out a very interesting uh, career for yourself uh, getting this thing rolling. And I, I'm really excited to see where this goes for you um, and, and, and what you can do with your ortho uh, ID research, some of your infection prevention things that you've been doing and everything else. Uh, did you have any questions for us that, you, that you're just dying to ask that, that you know, you, we, uh, we just learned today that I was a football fan because that didn't come out, even though Sarah and I must have done a really bad job of interviewing each other at the beginning because I learned on Dr. Hewlett's podcast that um, Sarah uh, does um, various things at night looking for ghosts. So I didn't know that. So I clearly didn't ask a very good question uh, of her as well. Yeah, I, I, I do have a question actually, and it's for Sarah. So Okay. I was looking at your Twitter account and I saw that you listed yourself as an urban explorer. Yeah. Uh, is that is that the same as ghost hunting or or what's that about? That it is not the same as ghost hunting, but it, it kind of plays into the same vibe and aesthetic, I guess. Um, so urban exploring is just going and finding cool old places and checking them out. Um, along with my paranormal stuff, I'm also a photographer. So I go take pictures of buildings that are falling down and make them look super creepy. It's a lot of fun. Are any of those old buildings actually haunted? Yeah, I've, um, I've got a lot of photographs of old haunted buildings and a lot of, a lot of the haunted locations we go to are like old asylums or old poor farms that have sat empty for years and years. And then somebody finally was like, oh, this place is haunted. I should like buy it and have people come stay in it. So they're not necessarily like totally abandoned right now, but they have been in the past. So they still have that, that empty building aesthetic, right? Paint peeling off the walls and you know, like the roof is falling in, that kind of stuff. Um, I, I love it. I love exploring that stuff. That's very funny. Um, there's, a, there's a show that, that was on TV. It was a spinoff of The Walking Dead. Uh, and that they had a segment where, uh, you know, the protagonists go through this, this hospital full of zombies. And they actually used for the set um, the, uh, the hospital that I was born in, in Austin. <laughs> same hospital that my folks did their residency and training in um and so they 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 said they were recognized <laughs> by the uh that's too funny by the hallway and the gurneys yeah hospitals are always a really interesting place to go when they're empty you know there's been so much history in that one building and people being born and dying and you know just all the lives that were touched and all the stories that surround those so um you know, just going and sitting in an empty hospital by yourself is a really cool experience. Huh, very interesting. So it's actually a thing to go buy a building that you think is haunted and then have people spend the night there. That's actually a thing. It is actually, you can make a lot of money doing that, actually. Um, a lot of these places will charge like three or $400 a night to go investigate. So you book it for the night. And you investigate and they have, they're booked out for the whole year. Well, when I go on a paranormal experience, I definitely want somebody like you there who knows what the heck they're doing, because I would have absolutely no clue. Absolutely. We need to just have a, like a team building event. 
can totally set that up. I know a couple of different location owners. We can just have a good old time. I, I got to tell you, that sounds like such an, that sounds like the start of a horror movie, you know, it's like, oh, well, our, our car died. I guess we're going to have to walk up the road to this castle in the distance to ask if we can spend the night, like oof, intentionally buying a haunted place so that you can, you can rent it out. Just incredibly, incredibly bad vibes. I am that person that like the car doesn't die, but I make the driver stop so I can go check it out. <laughs> wow. I get you're scared the, easily. I get scared during scary movies. I don't know. <laughs> you're the person I'm like shouting at the screen at during the movie. Yeah. What do you think? I would be the first one to die in a horror movie. I'm pretty confident in that. <laughs> so one thing that Dr. Cock had asked us was um, Marvel Universe, Harry Potter, or Lord of the Rings? Oh man, um, I'm going to go with Lord of the Rings and it's because of a, a personal experience. Um, there is an amazing set of movie theaters called the Alamo Draft House. There's actually one here in Omaha, but it yep. started, started in Texas, part of that Texas to Omaha pipeline. Um, and they had back in the day, this amazing event where they would, you spent the entire day at the movie theater. They'd play all three movies, the extended cuts of all those Lord of the Rings films. Um, and they would feed you the same meals that the little hobbits were having on their journey as they had them. And so, you know, I got my potato and rabbit stew. I got my, you know, meat and turkey leg and gondor, uh, the little the little sausages that they're eating on the mountain trail. Uh, it's like it's one of the best experiences of my life, like totally hedonistic. It was great. Did you get some salted pork? We did. <laughs> so, you know, nine different meals in the span of 12 hours well you have to have like second breakfast and everything else yeah. right oh absolutely we had a it was great <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome well thanks nico i know you got to run uh you got to do some uh some msis work but we greatly appreciate you being on it was fun i hope you had a good time and maybe we'll have you back again sounds good thank you guys so much yeah. And thanks to all of our listeners out there for tuning in for another episode of Dirty Drinks. You can find us on Twitter at, at dirty underscore drinks and give us a follow. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Dirty Drinks. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends if they enjoy Dirty Drinks. <laughs>